Hey everybody. I'm Tara Luafemi. And I'm Darian Carr. And we are Master of Architecture students at the GSD. The Nexus is produced in conjunction with a commitment by the Francis Loeb Library to acquire and create an open access bibliography of various media suggested by the community on the intersection between race and design. On today's episode, we have Dana McKinney joining us. Dana is an architect and urban planner who is an outspoken advocate for social justice and equity through design. During Dana's time at the Harvard GSD, she helped to establish the inaugural Black in Design Conference, Map the Gap, and the African American Design Nexus. She subsequently worked at Gary Partners, where she focused on the LA River Master Plan, Southeast Los Angeles Cultural Center, and other river-related projects. Dana is currently the development manager at Audre, an equity-centered development company in Portland, Oregon, that seeks to develop buildings that create social and economic benefits for Black, Indigenous, and people of color through the creation of affordable homes, mixed-use developments, and facilities for mission-driven organizations. Dana also established Studio Kin, where she consults on social justice and equity design problems. In 2021, Dana co-founded Enfold Collective with Megan Eccles, a fellow GSD alumna. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dana. Thank you guys for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you all. Dana, thank you so much for coming. We just had an episode where we had a live conversation with attendees of the Black and Design Conference. Prior to that, we recorded an episode with Seku Cook, who shared with us how he and earlier members of the ASU were part of the creation of the first Black and Design Conference, yourself included. Can you share with us the journey to get something like that started? Yeah, of course. So we were a really small organization at the beginning. In the early phases of the ASU, it was just two people, a Loeb Fellow and a landscape architecture student. And I joined that second year in which we had about 12 students. Although we were really small, we were quite mighty and we had a lot of ideas, lecture series, symposium, a conference. We actually met with school leadership in early 2013 and floated the idea of a conference, but it was a bit (laughs) discouraged at the time, and we were instead told to focus on something smaller. We were also kind of encouraged to think about the size of our audience, given that we were only 12 at the time, and to think really clearly about how many people we could honestly attract. I think Black and Design didn't really become a a grander idea until we had the, the meeting with Kanye West in October of 2013. From that day on, uh, we really gained the attention of the administration at the GSD. And the day after his visit, the leadership of the ASU landed themselves in the dean's office, uh, a little bit with our, our tails between our legs, but also standing in pride. And at that moment, we really gained a lot of attention and garnered some respect from the university and the broader institution. We then established a really good rapport with the dean and started talking internally about other things that we wanted to do as a student group. And so we then started to do symposia, including Informing Justice, which was looking at urban spaces and urban violence and and blight, as well as hopeful sentiments of how people, specifically Black communities, can move forward from those conditions. We then held a hackathon in October, or excuse me, November of 2014, looking at police brutality and how we can map and literally calculate different incidents of police brutality. And then eventually led an independent study that was actually led by Stephen Gray, looking at how to really then map and create an installation about 
police brutality and fatal encounters with the police. And so all these different initiatives that we were working on were kind of building a case for the AASU and the strength that we had as a small but mighty organization. And so we also at that moment were garnering support from other groups within the school, specifically the Loeb Fellowship. And really we're looking at how to use and leverage those relationships to build that support more broadly. We also got really involved with the local Boston NAACP chapter and started showing face at any and every protest throughout the city and public meeting uh, and other university student groups, organizations, their events and meetings to, again, build a case for ourselves and to say that we had strength despite our small numbers. In the late fall of 2014, we reapproached the dean about Black and Design, but this time we came with a plan in hand. Uh, we also had a, an internal and an external committee that was put together of students as well as Loeb Fellows and, and previous graduates and friends of, of the organization. We came in with dates, idea of different conference speakers, of an ideal budget, how many days we wanted the conference to be. We had ideas of swag bags, the whole shebang. And that meeting basically cemented for the university that we were ready. And the dean committed to our first major contribution to the conference. Uh, within about five months, we raised $50,000 and planned the three-day event that which became the inaugural Black and Design Conference that October of 2015. We actually sold out our conference without any issue. We then oversold by about 150 tickets, which was an interesting thing to have to, to deal with in retrospect. But it was awesome to be able to see something that we kind of dreamed about three years prior come to fruition um, while having you know the support of the administration and then all these other organizations and people um, that really helped us along the way. My follow-up to that, I mean, you're talking about all of this work done by students really and it's a crazy to hear you talk about it because I actually also took you know the independent study with Stephen Gray which is the map the gap course and when I did it I was focusing on Louisville Kentucky and you know ways that the built environment is targeting black communities as a form of violence you know through pollution um, and that is a form of you know racial violence and all of that. And it, you know, it's interesting that you're talking about these things that started when you were a student and they're still lasting right now. And I'm curious, you know, how you were able to balance your time as a student with being involved in starting so many of these initiatives. Like even as a student now, I'm not even starting these things, but I'm joining them and um, continuing them. And sometimes I get like overwhelmed or exhausted and you all had this energy to do it. Um, and I'm wondering what was that like, you know, and, and what was fueling you all to take these kind of tasks on? And I'm very excited when I take these on because, <laughs> you know, I'm like, man, if they were doing that and they started it like, and, you know, as I'm doing the work, it's very exciting to do it. But I'm like, mm. how did you even take it on to start it? I, mean, I wouldn't even know where to fundraise $50,000 from, right? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't easy. Yeah. It really wasn't easy. I like to joke, especially in retrospect, I don't think I knew what I got myself into until I left the GSD and saw how tired I was. But I tell my family and a lot of my friends that weren't there to see it in person that I was really a full-time activist and a part-time student. But I still somehow managed to finish on time and still finish like with pretty good grades, I would say, at the end of the day. But I don't know if I handled it with the most grace that I probably could have. 
and I probably overextended myself a lot. I think we got into what we got into because we felt like there was a need to do so and that there wasn't an existing institutional infrastructure to do that type of work. And so we we wanted it, we craved it, and so we did it for ourselves. I was at the GSD for a long time as well, which is, you know, most people are there for two years or three years. I was there for four and a half because I was doing two different programs, both architecture and urban planning. During my first two years, especially, I wasn't sleeping. Um, I think it's very common for architecture students, but I really was not sleeping enough. And it wasn't until I started my third year when I started the urban planning program that I realized like, oh, that's not really working in my favor. And Forsyth, who is an incredible faculty member, but is also just a very wise person, acknowledged that, you know, if you don't sleep, your work has diminishing returns. And actually showed us during orientation this chart, which was a beautiful little graphic that just showed that after less than five hours of sleep, you don't really have any productivity with your work. And that graphics just stuck in the back of my brain like nothing else had before. And from that day forward, I committed to sleeping. And what I found at first was I was a little stressed. I was like, oh, I'm not going to have time to do the things that I want to do. I'm not going to have time to go to protests. I'm not going to have time to, you know, go to the museum on the weekend or, or hang out with my friends, let alone do the ASU or my schoolwork. But I started prioritizing my time a lot more and started seeing an improvement in my grades, which was so astounding for me because I was just like, how is this possible? I'm working less. But my grades really started to excel. And I was a lot more efficient in the way that I was engaging the AESU work and the other projects that I was working on. And I was just a much smarter thinker and in the way that I was doing things and much more intentioned in the time that I was taking. And so I think that worked out really well. There was also a moment where I realized, I think just for like my mental health, my mental acuity, it was important to take more time for physical health and wellness. And so I was a dancer when I was in college and growing up my entire life, I was a dancer. And so going back to the dance class, going to yoga class, even just like taking really extended long walks, even if it was five degrees outside with a wind chill, it was important for me to take that time. And sometimes those quiet times were really important, especially when we were dealing with heavier topics or approaching things that were not easy to kind of compute, especially when you had all these other stressors from being at the GSD. And just taking that time. So like we were there like during all the major Black Lives Matter, you know, protests of 2015, 2016. And and it was a lot. It was a lot to handle, especially when you were in an institution where a lot of people have blinders on and their heads are down in the books and in their drawings and their models and they're not paying attention to what's going on in the world. And so it was a lot and it wasn't easy. And I sometimes look back and I'm just like, oh my gosh, how the heck did you do this? <laughs> I'm so glad I did. It's exciting to see that the work has continued and to have these ongoing conversations and to know that we help to create something and to help create change within the institution that for the most part hasn't had that much change in the space. It hasn't had that leverage to be able to have conversations about justice and equity and blackity black things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in that sense, um, how did that continue and how did that work kind of be a domino effect once you graduated? Yeah. Because I know that a lot of the work you did in school didn't just stop in school, both mm-hmm. when you were in school, but also um, as a professional and as a practitioner. Yeah. Well, it was funny. When I finished my thesis in January of 2017, I met with Dean, the Dean at the time, uh, Mosin Mosafavi, and he was like, you're not leaving. I'm like, absolutely I am. <laughs> and 
I had a really long conversation with him that was quite honest and a little bit vulnerable at times. And I was like, I need to leave. It's time for me to get out of this place. But one thing I agreed to do was to maintain my relationship with the ASU, to maintain my relationship with the university, and to kind of keep a pulse I mean, my pulse to the work that the organization was engaging. And then uh, several other people who were kind of in my cohort of the ASU did the same thing, especially with Black Design and somewhat, some degree with uh, Map the Gap. And so that was important. And so I would have like monthly or quarterly check-ins with people in the organization. I would occasionally call into planning meetings for Black and Design, but to just have continued feedback and to make sure that there wasn't institutional like memory loss. Because again, a lot of people when they're at the school are only there for two years, especially for like MUPS and sort of post-professional degree students, you're there for a very short amount of time and it's hard to maintain that energy and the momentum. But it wasn't just me. There's so many other people who are doing the same. And I think it also really helped to identify people who were going to have longer tenure at the school. And then also establishing relationships with faculty members, example of like Stephen Gray. He's amazing and has been so supportive of the work that the ASU has done. And I think just having someone like him to be there with the group throughout its process, even if it's more on, um, you know, hand in hand or more from a distance and an advisory role, having someone who knows the organization that can kind of make sure that we continue to move forward. And grow. And it's not just perpetuating one organization or one version of the legacy, but to continue to grow in that legacy. Yeah. I'll follow up here because I am curious about when you stayed on and part of what you did when you when you were maintaining these connections with the school, one of the main roles you did was kind of starting this African-American design nexus, which is what we are right now. Yep. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about how this initiative started and how you were involved with that? You know, and that was one of the more shorter term concrete roles mm-hmm. that you stayed on for. Right. But it's I mean, it's blown up into this whole institution that we have going on right now. Absolutely. Um, and so what was the original idea for this? You know, what were you originally imagining? the AADM to be? Yeah. So we first envisioned the African-American design nexus out of the Black and Design Conference. It wasn't an immediate transition, though, by any means. Um, We had a lot of conversations with the dean and other administrators at the school trying to figure out ways that we could kind of ride the wave of the the inaugural Black and Design Conference because we had a ton of people and opened attention on us. We initially workshopped the idea of a publication, which was a cute idea, but would have been a lot of work for us at the time. We also floated an idea of doing a fixture within the library, either a little installation or have a series of bookshelves that would showcase Black designers, or maybe even have a part of the library that can have a physical archive for drawings and models and other artifacts by Black designers of significance. But to be honest, we were exhausted following the planning of of Black and Design, and not to mention we were still full-time students. And so we were just really, really tired and didn't have the energy to follow up and follow through with the publication, let alone an installation or bookshelf, basically nothing at that time or during that year. Um, And we kind of felt like we dropped the ball. But the following year, uh, we started to kind of revive our conversations about what's next. And We had then secured funding for the next Black and Design Conference, the 2017 one. And the university was like, you guys need to figure out what else you're doing in the interim. (laughs) 
And we decided that we really wanted to, to work in collaboration with the library. At the same time, so this is in about 2016, uh, Phil Freelon, who subsequently passed away, made a huge donation alongside of Perkins and Wills to the GSD to one support students, specifically Black students and their financial needs for, with a scholarship, and then two to support a, a research initiative through the Loeb Library. And so basically this was kind of the beginning, financially speaking, for the Design Nexus. It was a pretty intense series of conversations that followed once we kind of all figured out we had the money, we had the idea, we had the, the space, to then what is the name of this going to be? And uh, the ASU, which is, which is the African-American Student Union, was very much in favor of calling it the Black Design Nexus, kind of a cue from Black in design, not the African-American Design Nexus. And so there was a lot of back and forth with the university as to what it was going to be called. And African-American Design Nexus ended up winning that debate, mostly so that we could focus on the American context of Black designers. It felt a little bit like a battle dog, but it was good to make a decision, which took much longer than you would imagine. But I think for some of us, we were a little sad because it would preclude people like David Ajay or Kunle Adeyemi or Leslie Loco from being a part of that conversation because they didn't have the American part of the African diaspora. But we moved forward and kind of shepherded from then on and went pretty headstrong. And so that February of 2017, was when we really started the project of researching designers and different architects, landscape architects, planners, fashion designers, industrial designers, the whole shebang to create this directory so we can understand like what does the landscape of African-American designers look like in America? We started with the directory of African-American architects, which was a project out of the University of Cincinnati it was started by Dennis Mann and Bradford Grant. And that list was really helpful and included a list of all the African-American architects, the landscape architects, and design faculty members. But again, it didn't necessarily extend to sort of the, the less typical or more abstract design fields. Um, so we used that as the basis. And then from there, made a lot of phone calls, spent a lot of time on LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook and different design magazines and, and blogs to then build out that list to be a much more comprehensive database. I would not say by any means that database is full or complete. I was doing it for about a month and a half and LA was calling my name and then I passed on the project to other researchers from then on. Yeah, so I actually have a follow-up question because that conversation about, you know, whether to call yourselves the Black Design Nexus or the African-American design next. I mean, you know, we always see that come up in schools already when we're talking about should be the Black Student Union, African Student Union, <laughs> African-Caribbean Student Union. We're not going to get into that right now. But, you know, it is something we still talk about here at the Design Nexus whenever we're featuring projects or speaking to people on the show. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's interesting because now we've kind of decided so as not to, you know, leave out designers like David Ajay or even designers like myself. I'm a Nigerian citizen, right? Mm -hmm. Who's just kind of grown up in the US and like Canada for most of my life. We kind of have decided to focus on people with a scope of work in America mm -hmm. or designers with an impact in America or American projects. And it's an ongoing conversation because, mm -hmm. I mean, the African-American influence is so important, but there is still like 
this diaspora that we need to like focus on and like we don't really reach out to people who aren't really in the u.s or working in the u.s but i'm curious as to what your original thoughts were on making it the black design nexus and how you would have kind of defined those bounds of the black design world yeah as global as (laughs) that is you know yeah i think for me i don't think of I don't think of myself as African-American. I think of myself as Black. And so to ascribe the word African-American, which isn't even really part of my vocabulary as an individual, it was it was hard to even have that conversation, especially with a predominantly white institution, kind of to identify what we call ourselves or we call this new institution itself, you know, the nexus. And I realized that Black people are not a monolith. We're also not literally the color black. And we have disparate backgrounds and there's diversity among black people. And, you know, you can be someone who has Caribbean ancestry, but then you might have Creole this and you might have West African that and East African this. And there's just so many parts of the diaspora and there's so many different lived experiences. I was concerned, personally speaking, that African-American was too narrow in the scope and that it wouldn't absorb the voices of people who have incredible voices, who have incredible thought, incredible practice from participating in the, the archive or participating in whatever projects that came out of the nexus. And so I think it was just a personal concern of mine. I'm, I'm really proud to see where the nexus has gone. And I, I'm glad to know that you guys and, and the other people that have been part of it are open to exploring a broader definition of African-American. I do understand from an institutional perspective why it's helpful to kind of come in with a narrower focus, especially when you're first establishing something. It's it's hard to kind of go out super broad. I just personally would hope that in the future we can continue to be open-minded and to accept the voices of other people that are part of the diaspora because it is beautiful and it's not just one condition. It, it's so varied. Yeah, and I think um, kind of in my time with the African-American design nexus, I too consider myself as someone who's Black, not necessarily African-American. But it makes sense. I've made sense of it in that, you know, we're bringing these different diasporic parts of ourselves or parts of design and kind of grappling with the American context. You know, um, a lot of the conversations with the podcast, like, we're talking about like a question of archiving or a question of like hip hop or a question of like even, you know, self-care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Those elements there are kind of unique to America and, you know, things we're dealing with. And I think Tara, you had a comment on that. Yeah. So earlier, I'm not even sure if you, you noticed that you made this comment, but you were talking about all of the work you guys had done and how you felt like you guys had almost dropped the ball because you didn't get as many projects done as you had wanted to or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I was actually almost shocked by that because you were talking about so many things. Right, Um, (laughs) right. So many things. (laughs) So many. Um, So I I was actually really shocked by that. Um, And I'm wondering if there's a way that we can, you know, how do we create more space to be more gracious to ourselves, especially as Black students doing so much work? You know, Mm -hmm. I think we are particularly aware of the ways that design is harmful in this world and how we can use design to change the world. So we're always like, oh man, okay, we we have to start this initiative. We have to do this. We have to do that. But 
I'm looking at all the work that you've done and how you're burnt out, how you're tired, and how you're talking about how you didn't sleep as much. And you're still like, I just wish we could have done more. We really dropped the ball. <laughs> you literally said you dropped the ball. I was like, what? Come on. Maybe I'm like overreading, but I was like, I think you're being a little hard on yourself. So yeah. how can we as Black designers learn to create more space for ourselves mm-hmm. to be a bit more gracious? Or how have you learned so in your career? Mm-hmm. I mean, you worked at Gary Partners, right? That's not a Black design firm. No. <laughs> um, you know, how did you in, in your time there look at your projects there and learn to be a bit more gracious to yourself and the work you were doing there? Yeah, I guess I, I, I should be a little less harsh on myself. It's because I grew up in a household where we were taught you have to work twice as hard as your peers if you want to get ahead as a Black person. And to never take it for granted that you are a black face in a white world, or at least in America, in the context of America, I'm a black face. And so I think I've always kind of put an, a level of burden on myself to achieve. And so when I was doing all this work in the AASU, it was also in the context of doing well in school. And it wasn't that I felt like I had to graduate with distinction, but I, I needed to do well because I've spent the money. <laughs> but I also like, I really wanted to be a designer. I wanted to be in the space. If you be in that space, I need to be good at what I did and excel in what I did. And so I think when there are things I've left on the table of those ideas that we laid out for ourselves as an organization, it did feel like a little bit of a disappointment, even though we had done a lot. And so I, I sometimes joke with some of the girls from the original Black and Design committee, like, oh, we could continue to do these things even now. And they're like, girl, we're tired. (laughs) Um, But I think once I graduated, I effectively had maybe about two to three months of a reset. And I I did basically nothing for those three months. I sat on the couch. I watched a lot of trash TV. I probably ate more than I should have. And I just mentally took a break and checked out before moving to Los Angeles. We're working at Gary Partners, which it was an incredible opportunity, but was also not an easy one. It was going from the GSD to that. It was a lot in itself. And I think when I first moved to LA, I really learned what self-care was. And maybe it's because it's California and it's, it's LA and everything's so LA. And I lived about a mile and a half from the beach and I started spending a lot of time at the beach and a lot of time in yoga class and time meditating and eating really, really well. And so I, I think it was there that I really learned what self-care meant because even though I might've had really stressful days or weeks or months, it didn't wear on me in the same capacity that it had when I was at the GSC. And the work, especially once I got out of the model shop at at Gary Partners, the work that I engaged wasn't easy mentally. I was working on the LA River and focusing a lot on persons experiencing homelessness, on issues of housing affordability, on sort of disproportionate outcomes on Black and Latinx communities. And that work is really tiresome, just like working on police brutality and fatal encounters. And especially with the homelessness issue in, in LA, it's a pandemic in its own right. And to work on that for almost three and a half years consistently day in and day out was really difficult. And so just making sure that I maintained a routine, also therapy, good stuff. So making sure that like I was keeping my own self in check while engaging the work that was difficult. And I feel like ever since I've made that new balance for myself, it's really made a difference in the way that I've been able to my level of productivity and my way that I've, I approach my own life has just been really helpful. And so now like every Monday through Friday, every morning I wake up and do yoga 
when I meditate. And it's just very important for me because I continue to engage hard topics, difficult things, and work a lot of hours. And to maintain that, I just have to make sure I'm taking care of myself. I really appreciate that. Tara and I are in the finals week, essentially. At least I have my final crit um, presentation next week. But started at least trying to meditate 15 minutes in the morning has helped incredibly. Like it's been incredibly beneficial just for kind of keeping the mind (laughs) inside the mind. But I wanted to ask how we can start to build this sustainability or this wellness into a field like design. In my personal experience, I had to go through some failure in order to realize, oh, hey, these things are actually very important and I need to prioritize them in my life. Similar to what you were just describing, kind of going to LA and and being in a new context and all of a sudden realizing that you needed to prioritize self-care and, you know, have time for yourself because this work is tiring. And I think speaking from my perspective and also conversations I've had with my friends, it's hard to even acknowledge how tiring the work is sometimes, depending on pace. So I just kind of wanted to pick your brain and get your thoughts on how like the next people kind of coming into institution like the GSD or wherever they go to school or whatever discipline or profession they're in, how to start doing that without necessarily not fail, that's too strong of a word, but stumble a little bit until to realize that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's by starting off with good self-care practices from the beginning and making sure the institution or the workplace are places that support that. And one thing I have to give Gary Partners props for, I mean, there's many things, but they care a lot about the mental wellness of its staff. And one of the things that they're very open about is that therapy is good and it's good for everyone. And you don't treat it like a hospital visit where you have to triage an issue. You treat it like your dentist appointment where you go every six months, but more regularly, ideally. Um, You treat it like maintenance, like you do with your hair. And it's important to, to have the time and set it aside because it's just as important as your, your physical health and your, your physical wellness. Um, and so I think it's important that if an institution or a workplace or an organization doesn't support that time that you need, that you either need to separate yourself from the institution or you need to push back on it. I think pushing back is probably more productive for society as a whole. And to come into Jesus moment as a society and say it's important to take the time we need to get right, to be in the right headspace, to be prepared and to not have to be so reactive in moments of need or moments of trauma or or just difficult times. And so I I think there's an onus on us to hold our institutions or organizations or places of business accountable, but for us to also hold ourselves accountable in doing those things and taking the time as given. I think it's like a combination of like, it's eating right. It's the exercise. It's the meditation. Yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. whole equation. And I think everyone's equation is different. Like I trust my cheap and trying to get my fiance to do yoga with me. And it's a little bit like pulling teeth, but it's important to find what works for you and to make that time and commit that time, just like you do with brushing your teeth. Yeah. So now that we've talked about all of these things, Right. I have this great question to ask you. Sure. That's almost very personal. <laughs> I know ahead. you're all like, what is she leading up to? I'm like, it's very personal to me. It's very stressful for me. 
It's the decision to become a licensed architect. It's the thing that, I mean, (laughs) we talked to Kira Hughes about it, right? The first 500, they were less than 1% of licensed architects in the U.S. are Black women. You were number 455. Mm -hmm. I will literally do a clap (laughs) (laughs) because that is fantastic. And I am like, We've, uh, you know, it's it's the one thing that I'm always avoiding to talk about because I hear all my friends talk about it every day. They're all so excited about it. They're all on the way to it. And everything that you're talking about kind of, you know, helped you like prepare for licensure. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a whole other beast in itself. I feel like nobody ever talks about how that is its own mental giant that weighs on you. And I'm wondering, like, what helped you decide to do this? What was the process like? Were you ever like, I want to give up? (laughs) I just like, I don't even know if I want to do it. Did you know that you wanted to be a practicing architect? Let's discuss. Yeah. So I, between undergrad and the GSD, I took a year off for a number of reasons. And I went back home to Connecticut and I worked for a really small architecture firm by the name of Mark G. Andre Architects. And it was literally three people in Mark's living room. <laughs> um, eventually we moved into an office, but we were working on a lot on residential projects and a lot of like very small New England very New Englandly type projects. And Mark is actually a Haitian-born architect. And we have a really great relationship. And he is, is still a mentor for me to this day. And we were at lunch one day and he it was just the two of us, the third woman, I think, when I had been out sick that day. But you know, he looked me in the eyes and he goes, Dana, you have to get licensed. And I was like, okay, Mark, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and I wasn't really thinking about it. And then like he kind of dropped it. And then maybe the next time we went out and it was just the two of us for lunch, he says, remember when I said you need to get licensed? I was serious. And he kind of just broke down like why he decided to get licensed and then said, do some research, look into it. And I stumbled upon the, I guess it was the AIA's like report on diversity. And I just talked about like how bad its numbers were for black and Latinx designers, especially. And I kept on seeing that, like, I think that at the time it was like 375 black female architects. I was like, what the heck? <laughs> and I went back to Mark and I told him all my, my little findings. And I was like, Mark, you know how few black women are architects? And he was like, yeah, told you so. <laughs> and he's like, but also go back and look at the numbers for women. And so I go back and I look at the numbers for women. And there was an entire article that was out that basically said that after women have families, I think the rate of licensure goes down to about 20%. And so I went back to Mark and I go, oh, okay, I see what you're trying to tell me now. And so basically from that point forward, I made the determination to get licensed. I think in part it was because, you know, I knew I was about to go spend all this money on grad school and to call yourself an architect legally, capital A architect, you have to be licensed. You can't just say you're an architect without having the license to your name. and Maybe this is vanity or, you know, maybe it's for my community. I don't know who it was for, but maybe it's for everyone. The idea of completing it 
in raising that number past 400. And once, I mean, I was in grad school for a long time, so there was a few new people that came in that time. But to be able to get in for 500, which is so sad, was also a really beautiful accomplishment for myself. It was not easy. There's a lot of hours you have to put in just for your internship time and trying to make sure you meet all the right categories and tracking down your partners to make sure they fill it out in time before you lose them. Logistically, it's kind of a nightmare at times, but you get through it. Um, I think the hardest part is probably getting through your exams. Coming out of grad school, you get a lot of debt. And I wasn't trying to spend a lot of money retaking exams. I read another fun fact that said uh, most people, even though there's six exams nationally, most people take 15 to pass and finish. Plus, I had the added benefit of being in California, which has a whole extra exam. So a seven. And I was like, okay, so like, let's do that math. That means I probably need to take it 16 to 17 times. And I did the math. I'm like, that's a lot of money. We're not wasting that much money taking exams. <laughs> and yeah. I talked to a lot of friends, people who were taking them, people who had finished them. And I just took notes and really tried to create a study plan for myself that I thought I could uphold. At that point, my fiance and I were long distance. And I was also like balancing cross-country trips once a month or every other month with him and trying to figure out how to prioritize that, my, my job, some of the justice work I was doing on the side. And I created a schedule for myself. And I was basically a two-month increment where every two months I would take an exam. And I would the first two weeks of the month, would be a light study. The second two weeks of the month was a medium study, so like an hour and a half a night. The last two weeks was a full two hours a night and then like four hours each night, day and the weekend. And I would take my exam, I'd pass my exam, and I'd take two weeks off and then restart the cycle. And I did it, and I literally passed every single exam back to back to back to back. Um, yeah, which is <laughs> wow, really exciting. Yeah. Which is really great until I had to take my California exam. And I haven't talked about this too much because it was kind of embarrassing at the time. But when I got ready to apply to take the California exam and I send in my paperwork saying, hey, look at me. I finished all of my national exams. I want to get licensed in the state of California. I get a, get a really long wait time before I get a response that basically says I've been audited. And I'm like, audited for what? And I called the state board and they effectively said, because I had finished my exam so quickly, I didn't fail any. And I was as young as I was, it was suspicious. And that I had to complete an audit to prove that I had in fact completed all my hours on time, finished my exams, did not cheat, etc. And that process took about six and a half months. I didn't get approved from the time I finished my last national exam to take my California exam. It took seven months in total. And that was really kind of a pain in the butt to say the least, but I had to like go back to all of my previous employers. And remember like when you're an intern, you have to go in and log all your time. I had to go back to every single employer and have them re-log all of my hours. So this is a matter of like people I'd worked for over a six-year span, having to call like my old internship boss from Boston, who I worked for for three months, to be like, can you just make sure you log these things? And he's like, what the heck did you do? <laughs> and like my partner at Gary Partners being like, are you in trouble? I'm like, no, I'm not in trouble. I just did my exams too quickly. I'm just too smart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and then I took the California exam and I passed that and it was good and dandy. 
but that in itself was just like this is an issue this is part of the problem like yeah, the system isn't set for me yeah that's i was very i would feel so discouraged yeah well i have to say i did kind of sideswipe the process a little bit and i got licensed in new york in the meantime because i was so like disgruntled by the issue that i was just like screw you california i'm going to new york so i got my license in new york so i finished actually i can't remember the date but i finished in 2019 and my goal was to finish before my 30th birthday mm-hmm. so i got new york before my 30th and then california about like five months after Nice. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> oh man. So I, I have a question, um, yeah. which is essentially, what about after licensure? Because mm-hmm. I know, like, in thinking about getting licensed myself, um, there's always the question of the exams and all the things that go into, you know, being able to call yourself an architect, mm-hmm. capital A. But I wanted to ask, how has the title affected your ability to practice and advocate for the kind of issues important to you mm-hmm. that we've been talking about previous in the conversation? Yeah. I have to say, some employers don't care really? if you're licensed or not. Wow. Pick and choose your battles. <laughs> but some employers don't care. And some do. So you might want to know that before you start the process. But when I got my license, for me, I felt like I was a little bird that could puff out their chest a little bit. And I felt a lot more entitled to talk with the level of expertise or precision that I used when I was talking to clients or even fellow coworkers. Whereas before I felt like maybe just because I hadn't finished going through all the ringer, I felt like I didn't have the knowledge base to talk about something with it. But at the very least, I got a sense of not entitlement, but I felt like I proved myself. I think since I've left Gary Partners, what I've done with having a license has definitely has made me a lot, I think, stronger as a professional. And I think people believe in what I say much more. I think, again, black skin, people have to work twice as hard. People sometimes doubt what you have to say. But as soon as I say I'm a licensed architect, people kind of, oh, okay. And people tend to be more mindful and respectful in the way that they communicate with you. It's funny though, because I've definitely have pivoted a bit in the work that I'm doing, even though I'm not planning on stepping away from architecture, it's architecture plus. And I think I've always have thought of myself as an architect plus, but I think it's a really great foundation to have and a way to prove that you understand what you're talking about to others, but then also know for yourself that you can actually engage the work that you want to engage, <laughs> legally speaking. I don't know. It's kind of weird. I have a lot of feelings about it, but- it's been good. At the same time, there are definitely moments people look at me and they're like, how old are you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was once mistaken as an intern like a year and a half into my job. And I was like, no, I've, I've been here actually. Oh, no. Oh, no. No, no. <laughs> oh, they're like, what are you like? No. Like, are you maybe 20, like 22, 23? I'm like, no, I'm like 27 at the time, maybe 28. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, I've been here. Oh, man. Well, I have a question. So what are the best resources, maybe free, maybe not free, maybe cheap or whatever, that you used? Um, and it could be expensive, but um, that you're willing to share with us that helped you during licensure or just, they could also not even be like academic wise, like things that you read or anything. It could be stuff that you were like, this was a great resource for how to like step away <laughs> from thinking about architecture or like how to approach architecture from a different angle. Yeah. I mean, I used a lot of like the sort of typical study resources when I was taking my exams. I actually did go back home to Connecticut at one point to pick up my old structures notebook, 
which lo and behold, I literally think I had three questions about structures between all seven exams. So that may not have been the best use of my time. <laughs> but um, I definitely look back at notes I had from like my, my professional practice class because that was a huge part of the licensure process is just understanding risk and liability and have, like the 50 ways you can be sued as an architect. I also really leaned on study groups. And so I had like three different groups of gals I would study with at like a local coffee shop or at a local cafe on Sundays or Saturday mornings. And sometimes during lunch breaks, a few of my coworkers and I would like find a quiet corner outside and would study together and quiz each other. I would make note cards like I was in high school all over again with a lot of the terms that I wasn't using on a regular basis. Because to some degree, I don't think you learn a lot of what you need to know for the exams in school. You also don't learn a lot of what you need to know in the exams in practice. And so it's kind of like taking the SATs. It's like some of it you might never see again. And so making sure I was like very familiar with a lot of the terminology and, and understand the calculations or whatever I was approaching on the exam, I just having that familiarity. I was a little bit not fun that year. I didn't go out a lot and I didn't really do much besides yoga and dance lessons and maybe cook for myself because I need to sustain myself. But I did a lot of studying and I was just really focused on that. It's sometimes funny though, as I'm now starting to set out on my own contracts, <laughs> it's like, oh, I did that in the exam one time. <laughs> and I'll like pull out my study box and I have like a giant box of notes and note cards and AIA contracts that you need to memorize <laughs> practically. And so it's actually been really helpful for me since I've been on my own to some degree. So it's been nice to know that it's coming back around and it's not going to be completely lost <laughs> to the ether, but it's been good. Thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. Honestly, I know this is something people are on the show are probably tired of hearing me talk about how anxious <laughs> I am about it. Let's find out if I go through with it. Hopefully I will. You uh, should. You should. I should. I should. More for the next generation than for myself, honestly. Yeah. I mean, it's honestly not as bad. And I know it sucks, but it's honestly not as bad as when talks about it being. If you just focus and do it, it'll be okay. Just like don't go out a lot and just make sure you actually study and don't keep on pushing back your exams. It's very common for people to do that, by the way. Yeah. Just focus on it and just say you're going to have, you know, six months or a year where you're not that fun, but you're going to get stuff done. Yeah. You know, it's funny because my cousin, she studied architecture in undergrad and then I went to grad school and then she went straight into construction uh, and project management. So it's funny. It's like both of us went, are like, yeah, do we really want to be architects? <laughs> ah, no. It's like, <laughs> Gosh, two less black women in architecture. But um, <laughs> how about and I add one more to architecture? So, yeah, uh, you know, I think I'll do it. You, the more women I speak to on the show, the more I'm convinced. You're convincing me. Yeah. You're convincing me. Also, then you get to put like little like AIA or NCARB at the end of your name and like. I need something cute. attached to my name. All my sisters have like PhD and Esquire exactly. and whatever. I'm like, well, I need something. I can't be one of those Nigerians without like MD or something. You know? <laughs> mm. I mean, you also spent like a lot of time at the GSD, like make it count, make it extend out a little bit. <laughs> well, I guess in conclusion, Darian, do you want to ask our last question? Oh yeah, of course. The last question, Dana, what do you envision for the future of the AADN? Um, which is a hard question, <laughs> but... You know, as our founding member, you know? Maybe to break it down a little bit, but to add some context around it, like the ADN, like Tara mentioned, uh, we're still having conversations about, you know, what we are and what we should do or the type of work we should engage in. 
Um, so we think it would be important to get your input um, for, I, I don't know, what, what, what this organization could mean or even with your professional experience, um, how uh, this resource that you put so much time into helping create could kind of keep paving the way forward. Yeah. I mean, I would love to see the African-American Design Nexus as like a headlining research institute or like institute within the GSD where it has significant name recognition, where you have like faculty who have AADN names like attached to their appointments, where you have people coming in as AADN scholars or a fellowship program. Like I can just see it becoming something that's truly an institution. And that is supporting a ton of different types of initiatives, some that are more academic, some that are more programmatic, some that are not within the GSD at all, maybe at other institutions that kind of filter in and have relationships with the GSD. I just see it becoming like a true nexus, like becoming a network that's outside of the centroid of the organization itself or of the institution itself. I would also like love to see the podcast with like a video component because I can always imagine like a little like a TED Talk version of the podcast where you actually see the person to the voice that's speaking. I think about a lot of architects who have since passed away that I really admire their career and their work. And I feel like it'd be so beautiful to have a series where people can look back on those videos and actually see those people. I don't know. I, I think about like Phil Freelon, who again, who's since passed away and he left such an incredible impact within the GSD, within the design profession at large. And he was a, like, a beautiful man with an awesome voice and just a great spirit. I just wish like other people could see his spirit. And like, I guess there are, there are probably plenty of videos of him on YouTube. And he was one of our first main speakers at Black and Design. But it would be so beautiful, I think, to capture these moments and to be able to see like the beautiful Black face behind the voice. Yeah, I think that's great. Oh, you know what I'd also do? I would probably change the name. (laughs) (laughs) To the Black Design Nexus? To the Black Design Nexus. I could have my way. (laughs) But I mean, I don't know if I'll ever let it go, but I, I just think that Black people as a whole are so beautiful and there's so much to be said about the work and contributions of like the entire diaspora that why limit it to just America? Like I get America and like it's a great country, but the rest of the world is also pretty great and there's just so much to be said about it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I can leave that one for a while. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Great. Thank you. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me. I'm Tara Luafemi. And I'm Darian Carr. And you've been listening to The Nexus, a product of the African-American Design Nexus at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. Today's episode was produced and edited by Maggie Janik. And we would like to thank DJ Iwe for our theme music. To learn more about the African-American Design Nexus, visit us online at aadn.gsd.harvard.edu.